Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You called my name and I ran out of the grave. That is straight from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that passage uh, this morning. Now, if you guys can bear with me for just a moment, I need to make a few remarks about zombies, skeletons, and graveyards, okay? Uh, Rotting corpses, skeletal remains, these things are universally regarded as distasteful. I don't know of any culture that uh, enjoys uh, pondering these kinds of things. Now, this is one reason that the dead are generally buried or cremated, right? It's one reason that zombie fictions tend to evoke horror and disgust. It's why battlefield aftermath is unsightly and and nauseating. The the dead are best left dead and buried. Now in scripture there are a few exceptions to the dead uh, remaining dead. Uh, One of the passages I think of uh, when, when I think of resurrection is John chapter 11 where Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus had been dead for four days. His body was already decomposing. He was in the tomb, and Jesus comes and has the stone rolled away and calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And I imagine this mummy-looking fellow comes up out of the grave, right? He had his grave clothes on, but he was restored by the power of God. I think of other examples in the Gospels where Jesus raises dead people to life. He brings them back. Uh, It restores their their lives. Uh, I think of in the book of Acts, there was a story in which Paul was preaching, and he basically preached someone to death. This boy was sitting in the windowsill, fell asleep during the sermon, fell to his death, but Paul, by the power of God, uh, was able to bring him back to life. In the Old Testament as well, there are examples of this. Uh, In the book of 1 Kings, we see Elijah calling someone back uh, to life by the power of God. Uh, in 2 Kings, Elisha, uh, who comes after Elijah, uh, did the same miracle, brought someone back from the dead. So these, these stories abound in Scripture. Of course, the most famous one is Jesus himself, right, coming up out of the grave after three days, uh, restoring our relationship to God through his death and resurrection. But it's probably safe to say, nonetheless, that about 99.999% of people who die stay dead, right? And thank goodness for this because it would be unpleasant to have corpses walking around in the streets. However, as odd as it might seem, the walking dead are actually among us. This is a reality of our fallen world. You see, the Bible draws a parallel between the decay of death and the reality of spiritual necrosis in which all are born and from which some are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So the God who raised Jesus to life offers hope for those who are dead in their transgressions and sins to also be brought back to life spiritually, okay? The God who breathed life into the first man, into Adam, also breathes life through the Holy Spirit into those who were dead in their transgressions and sins. He brings us back to life through the gospel. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ Um, This idea of bringing the dead to life, this is something I refer to as soteriological necromancy, 
Okay, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. Soteriological necromancy, what, what do I mean here? Well, soteriology simply refers to the doctrine of salvation. It's an important word to know. Okay, this is the, the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, okay, who took on the sin of the world and imputed his righteousness to those who have faith in him that they may be restored to life. That's what soteriology is. Now, necromancy, that's a... A bit scarier of a word, I guess. Um, necromancy that tends to evoke uh, these ideas of communication with the dead or a reanimation of the dead, that sort of thing. But honestly, that's exactly what God does, right? He calls the dead, the spiritually dead, back to life. Soteriological necromancy. So by God's sovereign power, we are raised up again. So we're going to be looking at that theme here in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 7 this morning. And just to give you a little background, to back up a little bit, over the last couple of weeks, we were in chapter 1 of Ephesians. And one of the major themes there was this idea that God is sovereign. God is in control. Before the foundations of the world, God prepared a people for himself that he would save. And then last week, we looked at how God opens the eyes of our hearts, right? He enlightens the eyes of our hearts. He gives us the ability to know him. And all of this to the praise of his glorious grace, all of this for the purpose of doxology, worship of God. That is why we exist to worship God. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you... Were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, would you guide us this morning in our study of your word? Would you open our eyes? Would you give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of us were born in hospitals, right? Um, maybe a few of you were born at home. Maybe even a few born in the car on the way to the hospital. Our birthing stories will vary uh, significantly, but our spiritual birthing story is the same. We were all born in the grave, dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live. So regardless of who we are, we were born entombed in a sarcophagus of sin. Okay, that's Psalm 51.5, Romans 5.12, Ephesians 2. This is the reality in which we live. So when Paul reminds the Ephesian church of their spiritual condition in Ephesians 2, he does not say that the Ephesians were sickened by sin or fatigued by sin or slightly inconvenienced by sin. They were dead in sin, beyond hope of resuscitation. Now, the theological concept behind 
Paul's words here is that of radical corruption, okay? Radical corruption. So there's a sense of totality to the necrosis in which human beings find themselves. What this means is that sin has affected every aspect of the human being, the body, the soul, the, the, the mind or spirit, the, the heart, everything has been touched by sin. This is what it means to be fallen. The decay of death, illness, uh, moral issues, problems in our lives, all of this stuff is attributed to the reality of sin. That's what we mean by radical corruption. Sin has touched us. Now, what Paul says here is that we are completely dead. That's the idea being conveyed here, spiritually dead, not mostly dead, all dead. Okay? Now, maybe some of you have seen the film The Princess Bride. Are you familiar with that story? It's one of our family favorites. It's a fantasy kind of adventure story, a comedy. It tells the story of this young man named Wesley who falls in love with Buttercup, um, his true love. But before they're married, Wesley has to go off on this quest to, to gain his, his fortune so he can come back and, and marry his, his beloved. But while he's away questing, Buttercup is taken against her will to the castle of Prince Humperdinck, the evil prince who's going to force her into, into marriage. Now, um, just before the wedding takes place, Wesley returns and he is able to rescue Buttercup from the clutches of Humperdinck. And you think, okay, they're about to live happily ever after, they're about to escape, but Humperdinck ends up tracking down Wesley. He captures him, and he takes him down to the pit of despair. And in the pit of, the dis of despair, Wesley's hooked up to this machine, a torture device. And the idea here is that the life is sucked out of him. And so Humperdinck puts Wesley to death, he kills him. And it seems like the end of the story, all hope is lost. But then Wesley's friends show up, and they take the body, and in desperation, they take him to a, a sorcerer, a wizard, with the hopes that maybe this wizard can revive their friend. And so uh, the wizard takes a look at the body, and he realizes, in fact, that Wesley is not all dead. He's only mostly dead, okay? And so when a person is all dead, the only thing you can do is go through their pockets and look for loose change. But if a person is only mostly dead, there's hope of resuscitation. And so the wizard makes this, uh, this chocolate-coated miracle pill, gives it to Wesley. Wesley comes back up from the dead. He rescues Buttercup, and they ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. And it's a wonderful story, right? Not all dead, mostly dead. Now, it's tempting to think as Christians that we're only mostly dead. Right? Maybe our spiritual condition is, is like that of Wesley's uh, physical con condition. Um, it's tempting to think that in our sin condition, we are just floating on the top of the sea in rough waters, just waiting for the life ring to be thrown into us or for the life raft to show up. And if only we get that little nudge, that little bit of help, we might be able to save ourselves. But that is not the idea that Paul is conveying here in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, what he is telling us here is that we are dead at the bottom of the sea, wrapped up in chains, sunk to the bottom of the sea with no hope of escape apart from the grace of God. See, what's really important here in Ephesians 2 are these words in verse 4, but God. 
but God. Okay, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. Okay, there is hope. There is hope. Not in ourselves, in Jesus Christ. And we're going to come to that in a, in a little bit. But first I want to unpack a few uh, ideas here that we see in verses 1 through 3. Because what we find here is that the world, the flesh, and the devil, these three things work together to contribute to our spiritual condition of death. So we're going to look at how those things work out and then turn to how God restores us, redeems us by his grace. So point number one, the dead are slaves to sin. Now, spiritually dead people do what is natural in their condition, and that is to rebel against God. That's what we do. Rebellion against the life giver is our grace-vacant default. That's who we are. Apart from God, our corruption is radical, our depravity comprehensive, and such degeneracy eliminates the possibility that we would return to God by our own volition. Both feet are in the grave, okay? Both feet are in the grave. So we were slaves to the world, but we need to understand, okay, what is the world? What does that mean in verse 2? Now, the world, or the cosmos in Greek, refers to this realm around us. This is this kind of mind external reality, the things that we see and experience in the world, okay? Culture, economics, politics, all of this uh, really relates to this, this realm of the cosmos, the, the world around us. So that is the, the world, and, and the world is full of a lot of very, very good things, but things that can easily seduce us as well things that demand our relentless pursuit. So these are things that cry out to us in the streets, things that appear to us on the incandescent screens of our smartphones and tablets and televisions and diversion machines. The world consists of things, like I said, that are good, but these good things can allure us and entertain us and captivate us to such a degree that our sinful hearts elevate these things to a place of supremacy. And that's where we have to be careful with the world. See, the world offers us many ways to ruin our souls. The world packages death in a lot of very interesting ways. And this is not new. This has been going on uh, for centuries. Right, even in the 17th century, I want to quote from uh, Blaise Pascal. Pascal was a French theologian, philosopher, mathematician, scientist, inventor, uh, he noticed this problem, and he said that we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting something in front of us to keep us from seeing it. We run heedlessly into the abyss. That is the world at work. The world calls us to self-destruction. Even after new life is breathed into the dead, the battle does not end. For Christians, we're still struggling daily against the temptations that the world offers us. Through the ages, the world has fought a war of attrition against the church with varying degrees of success. In fact, the, the, the pendulum swings as the church either stands on its doctrinal foundations in the word or falls to the consensus of the deadened horde. Theological indifference breeds a kind of cognitive void that is easily filled with interpretive schemas that are unrecognizable to biblical uh, Christianity. And in time, the church follows the world like a lost puppy, diluting biblical truth with cultural trends until devotion to the ways of Christ become unrecognizable to the church. 
See, when Christians adopt secular philosophies and invite these things into our thinking, we are not actually gaining credibility with the world as we might think. We actually become a laughing stock. In his classic book, Christianity and Liberalism, George Gresham Machen compares the Christian faith to a great city. And now understand, Machen wrote this book over 100 years ago. This is nothing new to the church. So he compares the Christian faith to a great city. And I kind of, I picture from the Lord of the Rings, the white city, you know, with the different levels, with the citadel at the very top. And Machen talks about how secular philosophies slowly break down the walls of that city. And the problem is that as the faith is attacked, the church kind of keeps retreating, thinking, okay, the world will, will, will stop its onslaught at some point, and we keep backing our way up toward the citadel. But the thing is, the world wants to take the whole city. It wants to take the citadel. So we have to stay strong in our beliefs and our faith. We see this stuff happening around us in a lot of different ways. I think one of the big problems today is the attack on the Word of God, the inerrancy, the authority of the Word of God. The world wants to keep eating away at that. Well, surely you're not so ignorant as to believe in miracles, right? Surely you're not so ignorant as to believe that this stuff is true, this book that was written thousands of years ago. And the world keeps kind of just picking away at Scripture. And of course, Christians, we don't want to look like fools. We want to look like modern, intelligent people. And we give in to that attack of culture, of the world. And after some time, the world ends up sacking that city. And we see this happen with um, evolutionary theory, for example, neo-Darwinian philosophy and in the world, in, in the education system. And we think, well, we want to sound smart as well. All these scientists believe that this is how we explain human origins through neo-Darwinian uh, ideologies. We want to look smart. We, so we end up adopting a kind of theistic evolution. We'll keep God around. We'll just kind of put him in the background somewhere. We'll keep him around just in case. We'll keep Jesus around just in case. And again, the world slowly just kind of picks away. It takes down wall by wall. And after some time, the result is the world just sacked biblical Christianity. Critical theory. I'm going to say it. It's out there, right? Critical theory, progressive social movements. We think, okay, well, these things can maybe solve some problems that Jesus can't solve. And if we allow these ideologies into the church, maybe it'll make us a little bit more relatable to the world. Maybe it'll make us a little bit more with it and that sort of thing. And the result is the world just sacked biblical Christianity. Political extremism of any form, right? Uh, We think, okay, this can solve problems Jesus can't solve. And so we elevate our preferred political platforms to this kind of messianic level. We give into the world a little bit more a little bit more. We think it'll leave me alone, it'll respect me if I just give in on these things and the result is the world just sacked biblical Christianity. Or it's outdated to think that Jesus is the only way. We all have friends of other faiths, right? Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and neo-pagans and whatever. They're good people. They believe a lot of things that we believe. They're trying to take care of their families and live good lives in this world. We think, well, how can we claim that Jesus is the only way? Besides, we want to look tolerant. And the result, again, is that the world just sacked biblical Christianity. 
So Paul's point here is that the world is a contributor to spiritual death. Many dangers to the church actually come from outside the church. We need to be aware of these philosophies and these ideologies. So the second point is that the spiritually dead are slaves to the flesh. We're going to skip ahead to verse 3. We'll come back to the devil in just a minute. Spiritually dead people are slaves to the flesh. Okay, the flesh, or, or sarkos in Greek, is the word that Paul uses here in, in verse 3. And this represents the corruption of the heart, the heart that beats for its own gratification. So, so we know that the heart to be deceitful above all things, right? Beyond cure, beyond understanding, Jeremiah 17.9. Scripture tells us that the heart is radically corrupt, the desires of the flesh incline us toward evil. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So that's not talking about an atheist. That's talking about a person who has rejected the moral instruction of the Lord. Romans 3.9-11, there's no one righteous, not even one. See, lust and covetousness is an erroneous story we tell ourselves to galvanize the sin that we've already begun to commit. Simply put, the flesh represents this post-fall sin condition into which all are stillborn and from which some will be saved by the grace of God. See, our flesh wants to convince us that we're not that bad, not that fallen, not that dead. Our flesh tells us, listen to yourself, listen to your heart, follow your dreams, believe in yourself as long as you're convinced that you can somehow save yourself. The flesh tells us that God is not needed. The flesh-driven soul believes it can manage its own sin. That's just how we are. Yet the flesh-driven soul loves its sin. Do you realize that? We love our sin. Apart from God, we're not going to give up those sins that we love. It's like washing our dirty laundry in even dirtier water. Now imagine a man in desperate need of heart surgery. Think about that for a moment. Now, this man has no medical knowledge, probably no, no knowledge of anatomy or human uh, physiology. He knows his heart is somewhere in his chest cavity. But he decides he's going to perform open-heart surgery on himself using some clumsy tools that he finds in his kitchen, some knives and uh, whatever he finds laying around. He'll use some mirrors and you know, figure out how to perform a surgery on himself. Now, think about the absurdity of that situation. Our do-it-yourself surgeon will die. It's inevitable. Um, he will die. See, our, our flesh tells us we can save ourselves. You can save yourself. Our flesh tells us we can somehow claw our way up out of our own grave. See, God tells us a different story, a story that involves his grace, his intervention in our lives. But God, verse 4, but God Point number three, the devil is at work among those who are spiritually dead. So we're going back to verse two here. Fleshly desire, worldly allure, these things are capitalized upon by the demonic forces that are work, at work in those who are disobedient. See, Paul calls this influence the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Now, by prince... Paul has in mind that the devil exercises influence over the realm of the air. So he has a great deal of influence in this world. By air, 
What Paul has in mind is the sphere between heaven and earth where it was thought that demonic forces dominated. We have to think like an ancient person here. There were three spheres, okay, the world, the cosmos that I talked about already, the world around us that's visible to us. Then you had heaven was the third sphere, and between heaven and earth was this realm of demonic activity, a spiritual kind of realm where demonic forces were at work. And that's where this prince does his work, right? So the devil, he shows up a lot in scripture. He's described as a roaring lion, right? He's described as a murderer, a liar, an adversary of God. And in fact, the the word Satan means adversary. He's a troublemaker. Historian Ben Thompson describes the devil well. Imagine the biggest, meanest, most diabolical, puppy-kicking, spine-crushing, insanitron demon you can possibly think of, then multiply that by a factor of infinity, throw it in, a, in the back of a cement mixer with a slurry of nitroglycerin-infused TNT and the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft, and you get Satan the big dog of hell, the prince of eternal darkness, an entity so evil that the mere mention of his name is enough to make people start writhing around on the ground like spastic morons. Um, That's a little over the top. (laughs) But I think he's on to something here. Satan is a bad guy, okay? And we're going to talk more about the devil and his activity in um, Ephesians chapter 6 when we talk about spiritual warfare, putting on uh, the armor of God. But this is a, a real issue here, okay? This is a real big deal. There is a demonic power at work in this world, and we need to be aware of that. Satan hates you, and he wants to tear you down. He wants to destroy the church. But know this as well, and I, I want to encourage you with this. The devil is not the king, okay? He's a mere prince, Jesus Christ is king. Okay? Jesus Christ is king of kings. And as we read last week, uh, Jesus has been elevated, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has all dominion, all power over the, sp- the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil is not king. So how does the devil contribute to the sin condition that used to reign in us, those who were dead in our transgressions? Okay, remember that the, the, the devil is not himself the, the source of and reason for our sin. He is really more of an expert consultant, okay? And under the sophisticated tutelage of the devil, we are instructed in the ways of rebellion, both blatant and subtle. He is the dragon in Scripture. He shows up in the Garden of Eden. He shows up again in Revelation 12. He shows up everywhere in between the ancient worm of the abyss. He's an unholy counselor who capitalizes on our weakness and our pain and our fear and our pride. And his goal is to let us think him a friend when in fact he is our mortal enemy. This is why Paul addresses this in in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, the devil masquerades as an angel of light. But he's bent on killing us, destroying us. Now, the seduction of Eve in Genesis 3 illustrates how these three components, world, uh, flesh, and devil, uh, contribute and, and really work together in our moral downfall uh, so that we, are, we undermine the moral will of God. See, the natural beauty and the appeal of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, coupled with this kind of idolatrous curiosity and a strong nudge from Satan, these three things together, that is what lured Eve into conscious this conscious act of disobedience against God, for which she was ultimately held 
accountable. Her and Adam were held accountable by God. See, for Eve, the world was the fruit, along with the wisdom and the power that it represented, that she would have knowledge, her eyes would be opened. The flesh was her hardened heart that turned from God. Okay, and then, of course, the devil shows up to tempt her toward that sin. The devil was not solely responsible for that sin. And it's really easy to want to blame the devil for our sin. The devil made me do it. Like Eve, the tendency of many Christians is to pass the blame onto Satan while ignoring our own part in our sinful choices. See, we sometimes attribute particular hardships to spiritual attack, and and, and it's true that there is going to be spiritual attack. But oftentimes, we ourselves have contributed all the necessary components to our rebellion against God with no help from the devil. So like Eve, the church is often subject to spiritual attack. But before passing all the responsibility to Satan as the sole perpetrator, we need to remember that the allure of the world and that our sin nature serves as a major contribution to our dysfunction. This triad of world, flesh, and devil is so pervasive in its manifestations, it should come as no surprise that those who live under the dominion of these things are ruined beyond hope. That's just where we are. That's why Paul, again, says that we're dead in our sin. But praise be to God, there is life in Jesus Christ. Don't forget verse 4. But God. But God. So this idea of soteriological necromancy that I I referenced. This takes place when the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead gives life and peace to those who were once subject to sin and death. Just as God breathed life into Adam, he breathes life into us. It is by grace you've been saved. Don't forget that. By grace you've been saved, not by witchcraft, not by some demonic ensorcelments or that sort of thing. By the power of God, we are saved. This is not some secret art practiced in cavernous black dungeons by odious hags, okay? We're talking here about the grace of God, a grace that redeems people. Now, soteriological necromancy, again, is initiated by God. It takes place when God's people faithfully preach the gospel of grace to the elect to receive new life from above. This is the heart of the gospel by which every Christian lives, the story of how God reached into our spiritual sarcophagus and calls us up. This is an exciting story. This should not get old. We need to hear this again and again. See, congregations who no longer delight in hearing Christ preached, church leaders who no longer delight in preaching it have elected to forego the only life-giving medicine available to curb the spiritual wasting disease brought on by sin. Church leaders who have lost the pleasure of preaching Christ have lost the ability and right to shepherd a flock. Congregations who have lost the pleasure of hearing Christ preached have wandered into dangerous pastures. I'm serious. See, the gospel must never be an afterthought. This is something we have, to, we have to live this every day. Eat it, drink it, breathe it, sleep it, live it, right? So here's my exhortation to you. Preach Christ to yourself every day. Preach Christ to yourself every day. Remember 
what you were, but know who you are in Christ. Furthermore, I want to invite you, remind me of Christ. I need the gospel preached to me every day. I need to remember who I was. I need to know who I am in Christ. Elders, Bible teachers, leaders in the church, tenderly shepherd the flock in Christ, in the gospel. Remember who they were, know who they are in Christ. Okay, we need to feed the sheep. Resist the world, the flesh, the devil, feed the sheep. Don't scold them. Don't beat them, don't ignore them, feed them. Feed them the gospel. Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, parents, those of you working with children, make God's saving grace the center of what you do. See, the point of the story is not that Daniel had faith or that David was courageous in the face of a giant or that Moses trusted God. Those are all good things and we can emulate those things. But the point of the story is that we are nothing apart from the grace of God. The point of the story is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, that while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. He made us alive, and that should give us compassion for the world around us. There are a lot of dead people walking around out there, spiritual zombies, you could say. We were part of it at one time. Have some compassion. Preach Christ. See, this is the most exciting thing about being a Christian, watching God give new life to those who were once dead. I shared that story a couple weeks ago about the girl in France who went from burning Bibles to giving her life, uh, a life of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Saved, redeemed by the cross. The most wonderful story of hope is the one in which the life giver, Jesus Christ, whispers words of rejuvenation into spiritually dead men's ears, and we watch as their spiritual eyes are wrenched open for the first time, and air is drawn into their spiritual lungs for the first time, and they stand up on their feet and they look into the face of their Savior for the first time and they walk with him into eternity. That is the good news of the gospel, to the praise of God's glorious grace. Remember who you were, know who you are in Christ. Now we're gonna take some time to remember uh, this morning. We're gonna remember through the celebration of communion. If you did not pick up the communion elements, there are some in the back. There are gonna be some up here in the front as well. Please grab uh, one of these elements, uh, the bread and the wine. I want to read you from Matthew uh, chapter 26. As they were eating, this is Jesus and his disciples gathered together. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Then after they had sung a hymn, he, it says he went out to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is where Jesus prayed, 
Father, your will be done. Okay, and it was the will of the Father, according to his plan, that Jesus would go to the cross to pay our penalty of sin. He took our sin upon himself so that we might receive his righteousness, so that when, through faith, we put our trust in God, the Father sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ within us. That is a gift God has given us by his grace. So we're going to take this, uh, this communion together. We'll begin with the bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And the wine, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing love, for that reminder, but God in his mercy, in his love, by grace has saved us. We thank you for that, Lord. Remind us of that truth. Help us to walk in Christ, in discipleship, to it once more remember who we were, dead in our transgressions, but to delight in what we are, alive with Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.